Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 60. On some episodes, I like to get into the technical details of AI and see how accessible we can make the explanations of those details. Because AI is an enigma to so many people. It looks like magic. And so, of course, then people read into AI their fears and their imagination to fill the gap. That's not useful. It's counterproductive. So today, I'm talking with Tomasz Mikolov, a computer science PhD who has done research for Good AI, the Czech institute that aims to build AI that can automate cognition in scientific research. We'll talk about Good AI and his research involving neural networks that can undergo continuous training instead of discrete training and execution phases, how AI can deal with inputs that are really different from anything it's been trained on, and what drives the types of research that are performed and funded in AI today. Here we go. Tomáš, welcome to Artificial Intelligence and You. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I saw an announcement that you have gotten a grant from Good AI to do work on exploring how novel behaviors arrive in artificial intelligence, and that really caught my attention. But before we get into that, let's just set some context here, because for those people who maybe haven't heard of Good AI or have heard the name but not quite sure what they're about, can you just bring us up to date with a capsule description of what Good AI's purpose is? Uh, sure, I can tell you, like, I'm not a member of Good AI, I'm just like uh, their collaborator. And where can I start? Actually, the first time that I did hear about Good AI was from, from Microsoft, and he was visiting New York in, it was like 2013 or 14. He basically, back then, decided that he's going to start an AI company that will try to develop this general artificial intelligence. I don't know if you've heard about the term, but it's supposed to be basically this AI that can solve pretty much anything that humans can, like, kind of a machine that can learn multiple tasks and that does not have to be programmed specifically for each concrete task. So it was like very ambitious and I remember that Mark was back then very impressed by DeepMind and their like Atari games and a machine basically playing various games like very good level comparable to humans under some special conditions of course. So that's the first time that I did hear about it. It did sound honestly a bit crazy to me because how do you build actually a company that is aiming for like some super hard scientific goal that hundreds of people they try to solve for their whole careers and they all failed so far. So it didn't seem like a good plan for a company that actually makes profit, but actually Mark uh, had a solution already because he started even before a company, I think it's called Team Software House or something like that, and they are actually developing some games and they managed to develop some very popular game called Space Engineers, which is actually where they did make a lot of money from, and that's uh, what Mark was using for funding Good AI. So that actually it makes uh, much more sense. I actually liked uh, that plan, honestly. Uh, 
more than what I've seen some other groups that were trying to aim for AGI. You know, like there was quite a few of them actually appearing around like 2013, 14, 15. Like you had DeepMind, you had OpenAI, and then you had a lot of clones. And usually the plan of these guys was kind of like similar. They would just come and make some cool looking demo or whatever that is currently popular in machine learning. They would claim that, oh, there's something amazing, give us money, we are going to destroy the world if you don't. And, you know, like crazy stories like that. And they would go to some very rich people with a lot of money and with no idea what they are doing in Silicon Valley or Hollywood or whatever. And they would just ask for like, oh, do you have some spare couple of millions of dollars? We are going to save the world if, uh, if you're going to give us money. So actually, I wasn't very impressed by these super beggars or whatever I would call it. And that's the business model of many of these AGI startups. But for Marek, again, I was much more sympathetic with him because he was actually investing his own money. Right. It seems that in a lot of quarters, the current pursuit of AGI has narrowed down to let's build the biggest transformer model that we can. And if we put enough trillions of parameters in there, maybe it'll turn into AGI. Do you have an opinion on that strategy? Uh, yeah, sure. I would have actually a lot of opinions, but just to try to uh, say it uh, in some short way, well, I don't think that you can actually just take something like Transformers or whatever is the latest neural network architecture that is popular and just make it bigger and just hope that something magical will happen. I'm totally sure that uh, many useful things can actually resolve from this because uh, just building a huge language model that people can use in many places is, uh, is a very useful thing. So I'm like very sympathetic with language modeling and AI connections, and I like it a lot. But the idea that people just keep doing the same, just bigger models, more parameters, which is what half of my thesis is about, but uh, I don't think it can resolve to AI. And I did even write some papers about it. They're like a very simple things that the models just kind of like, they don't really learn it. They can appear to be able to capture some relationships in language, you can actually have finite state machine that will be able to recognize up to some finite n these patterns quite well. But that's not because it's these finite state machines actually understand the regularity in the data. They can just memorize all those sequences, all possible combinations. And that's actually what the uh, even like the modern neural language models are doing in many cases. They appear that they have some knowledge of the language. But in fact, if you look actually how much data they are trained on, it's like maybe 10,000 times more data than a normal human will see in the whole lifetime. So it's more like illusion of intelligence than real intelligence. And then it's actually easily how it breaks down because you're making the context so longer and the memory becomes much more like visible, the memory limitations of these models. And if you try, for example, to build a chatbot based on these transformers, you can get locally coherent conversations that will be fine because it will be copied from training data that are totally huge. But as you make the conversation longer and longer, you will see that these popular architectures like Transformers have like very big issues with the memory and they will be just jumping from one topic to another topic. And basically it would be like having a conversation with a person that forgets every 10 seconds like what he's talking yeah. about. That makes them like massive Markov chain generators, if I'm remembering that part of my computer science right. But now here, your research, I'm just going to quote the announcement, said the goal of this project is to build on and improve novelty search, essentially allowing AI to learn and discover new things during its lifetime rather than learning only through maximization of some objective function, end quote. And that excites me because... 
If I'm understanding that right, we're used to neural networks having a training phase, which is real expensive and consumes large amounts of power, and then we execute it. But those phases never overlap. And this seems to be saying that you're going to a model where they will. Is that right? Can you elaborate on that? Kind of, yeah. Like you can think of typical neural networks that are trained supervisedly, that there's a supervision phase that we call training phase. In the training phase, you present some inputs to the neural network. It can be some image, for example, or it can be some sentence. And then you present it an output also like that you would like this neural network to compute. So for that image, you need to give it label. For that sentence, you need to give it some other sentence in our language if you are building a, some translation model, for example. So you need these pairs of inputs and outputs for the training. After the training is finished, you just show the network the data, some input data, and it produces some predictions, classifications, or translations, or whatever. It basically produces some outputs given the inputs. But it does not change anymore, basically. In the testing phase, when you use the neural network, all the weights are frozen, and there will be no learning error occurring. So you can have this huge transformer with like hundreds of trillions of parameters or whatever, whatever number, and they will actually never learn. You can run them for billions and billions of years, and they will be still the same, exactly the same, just coming from the mouth behind these models. So on the other hand, we can think of humans or even intelligence, not just human intelligence, but all the intelligence around ourselves in the world as being somewhat different. There's no training phase and test phase where everything will be frozen. It's more like that uh, life and intelligence is continually developing and there's no distinction between training and testing. It's, it's just uh, happening all the time that we are just producing some actions uh, based on the inputs and nobody actually is giving us some magical answers to what we should be doing at which moment. So actually the supervision is for many people like an illusion of intelligence and there's a lot of machine learning researchers who think that we need to get rid of supervisions to make advancements uh, towards more like AI of the human-like level. And that brings us to this project that you are asking about. Uh, there was like a number of people, like before me and, and my students, were thinking about this way when you are asking about the novelty. The novelty is uh, it's basically like some additional objective function. So there is some entity that decides in a population of agents that are, for example, playing the games or trying to find some way through some maze or basically doing some tasks. So there is some entity that is trying to give extra rewards uh, to the agents that are doing something uh, novel, that are doing something new compared to the others. So, which actually sounds good uh, if you think of it, but then you can ask, uh, does it actually happen in nature? Is there some god who's giving you some extra food for writing a novel book? It doesn't really seem to be the case. Like It seems that the novelty in, uh, now I don't want to go into theology or other, but uh, basically to keep things simple, it seems that in the nature, the fact that we have this diversity of our organisms, that we have a lot of diversity in the biosphere, there are like different species, uh, there are different birds with different uh, length of the wings or whatever. This diversity seems to be more like a byproduct of something more simple. The fact that uh, the environment is diverse and there are different places where there's food and there's uh, food that is accessible to some small birds and there's some food that is more accessible to the large birds. So it's more like that the diversity is not enforced by some extra objective function, but it's more like coming from the environment. Uh, sorry, I want to ask something. We're talking a lot here, or you're talking a lot here, about utility functions in nature, which we're trying to impute. Are you deliberately trying to interpret or analyze what the natural utility functions are for 
biological intelligence to model yours on those? It's more like an inspiration. I would not want to go into the details of neuroscience and the biological intelligence because that's usually complicated. Uh, so for me, it's more like an argument that uh, there may be a simpler way how to start observing novelty in, for example, evolutionary algorithms, which is like very old uh, type of algorithms, which actually they typically suffer from this fact that, uh, I don't know if you know the evolutionary algorithms, but they're kind of simple. You just uh, come up with some random population, then you let uh, some agents, then you let the, the agents to do something in some environment, for example, to solve some task or whatever. And because they are random, they will probably be more or less not really getting anything good, but there will be some better ones and worse ones. So you pick actually the better ones and you just multiply them and erase the worse ones. And you just iteratively do it like this. So you just make some random changes to the best agents, create new population, and then again and again. And oh, that is, uh, this can kind of like a... Uh, leads to something like simulation of the evolutionary process. So the issue with uh, the evolutionary algorithms that is well known, but it's kind of like unsolved, is that uh, this doesn't actually lead to this open-endedness. Uh, it, it doesn't lead to some evolution that just keeps going on. It actually leads to uh, kind of quickly, typically, to some kind of like stable populations because quickly the algorithm finds out some agents that are doing well and just multiplies them, take over all the population. And then you have a whole population made out of tiny changes of so basically a single individual and the evolution stops because it's kind of stagnates. It just converges to some point and just stays there. So that's the issue for these algorithms. And this novelty search is actually some idea how to avoid it, how to keep uh, diversity in the population so it doesn't actually converge to a single point, but that there would be still like some exploration going on so that you would keep agents that are maybe worse than the best ones, but they are doing something differently. So just keep there, keep them there in the population with the hope that maybe it will lead to something in the future because it's hard to predict. And now the thing that's about this project that we have with the students who are working on it, we wanted to do it in a more like principled and simple way. So measuring the novelty on this level of individuals seems to be very hard. And we just wanted to avoid it because, again, like our original idea was that uh, there's nothing like that in the nature. Nobody's giving you some extra rewards because you are novel. It's more like coming from the environment. So we actually took some tasks that Ken Stanley was working on and we had to modify the environment so that actually there would be some evolutionary pressure for the population to keep diversity coming, not from the objective function that would be trying to look at the individuals, but more like coming from the environment itself. And that has been achieved by just placing uh, random reverbs across all the environment. Uh, so you can think of some maze uh, and then the agents going through the maze. You have, say, 100 agents that are trying to find some way through. And now, because we are actually rewarding agents, we basically pick some random rewards at some random places. But because they are sharing the rewards in the same maze, uh, then the first agent that actually goes to some place uh, with their reward gets rewarded. So actually, even if the agent doesn't find a way through the maze, just because it's actually doing something else than the others, so then it's actually getting rewards. So it's more like behavioral novelty. If you do something different, then you will get some extra reward. And you don't need to have this extra entity that would be measuring your like neural network novelty or whatever. So it's actually much, much simpler. And in the end, actually, there is a paper that the students are currently working on. So I hope that I'm not saying too much details in advance, but uh, basically it's much simpler and it works better you're getting quite ahead of me in some areas here. Well, I want to make sure I understand the implications of this concept of attacking 
in recognizing novelty here. It's a common problem in, say, image recognition and tagging algorithms that when presented with something that was outside of their training set, they give a close answer instead of saying, I don't know. So Janelle Shane, for instance, publishes all kinds of hilarious analyses of these where you give it a picture of something that it's not seen before and it says giraffe or because it just doesn't know how to say, I don't know. Does your research attack the problem of what to do when presented with something where the answer would be, I don't know? What in humans causes the double take? Like, wait a minute, I need to look at that again. Well, I think this is a somewhat different problem. Maybe it's uh, in some way related, but I think that this like an old standing problem of, for example, in speech recognition community, there's this problem where, for example, new words that are not in the dictionary of the recognizer, for example, names of people, you know, like there's a lot of names, uh, possibly like uh, words that uh, may be missing in the dictionary and then a uh, speech recognizer should actually say something like, I don't know, we, we call it uh, auto-vocabulary words. Uh, so you can actually have ways how to deal with it. And there have been like a lot of projects on this. Uh, and in a sense, like many things in the computer vision community were done before in the speech recognition community. So it's actually nice to see like across uh, like a historical perspective that, for example, neural networks were used quite a bit before in the speech recognition community than in the computer vision community. When it comes to this novelty search, that's, I know that it can sound actually similar because we think that there are something like a novel, but in this case, it's more like a novelty that's not present at the input because what we are asking about is when you are given an image that contains, contains some new animal that, uh, that your plastic bar never did see before. So what do you do with it? But now it's actually the other way around the novelty search. So there you are trying to build some machine that can do new things. Basically, if you think of new networks, as I was uh, somewhat like criticizing some property that they basically converge to some point and after the training is finished, they never do anything new ever. So the novelty search should be more about like a building a machine that can continually kind of like forever create new things and hopefully also like some useful things. We would like to search uh, for more efficient ways how to generate novelty, something that actually can generate novelty that is closer to, for example, our universe that we observe around ourselves. So something that can actually generate, say, artificial life or artificial intelligence, processes of this uh, sort. And there's actually like artificial uh, life. And again, like back to this novelty search, it's really like about having some algorithm that keeps on generating new and new patterns. Uh, that are interesting in some way at the same time. You can see it actually somewhat connected to some very early works on, for example, solar automata from people like John von Neumann, who did try to come up with some solar automaton configuration that will be able to self-reproduce in some non-trivial way so that there will be some possibility of some mutations to kind of like kickstart some artificial evolution in machines. So uh, I think it's like very interesting. I think that uh, actually artificial life and artificial intelligence are very closely connected because in both you basically have some processes that keep on expanding in time and uh, as basically life and intelligence, it's kind of like a process that should be going possibly forever without having any upper bound and have a possibility to reach arbitrary complexity. So the novelty here is about generating novel behavior, is that right? Yeah, sure. Well, it depends uh, where, where you see the novelty. If you say just the novelty search itself can be like a very broad topic, but in our project, we did focus on generating novel behaviors, yeah. It's about generating something, which could be behavior, as opposed to dealing with something novel in an input. 
And the description of your work goes on to say that it's about generating insights into what environment and agent properties drive novelty in agent-environment interactions, and that could have far-reaching implications for the development of algorithms that operate in environments where rewards are very sparse and ultimately help in our quest to develop human-level AI. Can you speculate about the kind of applications that you can see this having? Well, there are several, like the original goal is to make some advancements in the way how we approach AI research at the moment to develop algorithms that can learn when there's no supervision or alarm, maybe it's too strong word, maybe you can think of just some continual development uh, when you don't have any, any supervision. So again, like that's an open problem at the moment when I was talking about sparsity words that actually is related to reinforcement learning, which is actually like a popular way how to avoid supervision. Maybe in the last decade, it was popularized again somewhat by DeepMind and the Atari games and what is gameplay machines. So, so I think actually that's like a very interesting direction because in reinforcement learning, you no longer expect that you will have these pairs of inputs and outputs. So you no longer need to know exactly what the output should be for each input. So for example, if you want to play chess uh, with a machine, like the machine should learn to play chess. Uh, then you just tell it at the end of the game, okay, you did lose or you did win. But the machine actually doesn't uh, need to be told uh, which was the optimal move with, with what uh, piece, uh, because actually there maybe even we don't know actually what was the best possible move. It's actually up to the machine to discover it, not our goal. So I think actually that's like a very nice like a trajectory to uh, to move away from supervised learning, which is more like a building a mirror that we look into it and see our face and believe that it's alive while it's actually just an image. So I think that supervised learning is more like about faking intelligence and just uh, language models are producing very nice text, but then you can see that pretty much uh, exactly the same things were set in the training sets. So they are mostly like copying parts of training sets and gluing it uh, up together. So like, I think that people are somewhat seeing much more in these transformers than what's actually in it when it comes to intelligence. But back to reinforcement learning, that's nice, but uh, I would like to see even going further to remove the supervision because uh, reinforcement learning still has a lot of supervision. It more or less works just in cases uh, where you get kind of like dense rewards. So even when you have games like the chess that I mentioned or like Go, you can think of having just the reward after finishing the game. But of course, like if you would look at the how people hacked together the solutions. It's more like about estimating some rewards at every move so that actually the machine can compute what is actually a likely move or like a possibly good move. There's a lot of engineering behind it and sure it works in the end and the machine plays the game, but the solution is not really like transferable to many other domains. You can't have a chatbot that would be just given supervision or like reward at the end of the conversation where you would just say, okay, this conversation was fun and uh, the chatbot would get some reward and just learn just from these various sparse rewards at the end of the conversation to like talk with you in a sensible way. That's just not doable with uh, reinforcement learning. So if we would want to develop more like sparse reinforcement learning, something where you just get like much less of the training signal or much sparser, I think that's actually one possible way is to think about these evolutionary algorithms that I mentioned originally, just having population of some agents or possible solutions that are doing something on some tasks and then you iteratively keep picking the best and multiplying them. But again, that leads to the problems that I mentioned as well that you will have these populations that will collapse into single points very quickly and the evolution will stop. So evolutionary algorithms are actually not good models of evolution. 
which of course is easy to say, and the harder thing is to figure out how to actually develop evolution algorithms that will keep on going, keep on evolving forever. And that's actually going back to this novelty search. How can we design systems that can actually evolve forever, that can keep generating novel organisms, novel patterns, novel structures forever? And in some sensible way, in some smarter way than just outputting bigger and bigger numbers, which again would be open-ended and would give you infinite novelty, but it would be very, very inefficient. And basically the universe will last sooner before we find any interesting solution with this super simple thing. Your description of reinforcement learning there makes me wonder if I've correctly understood how Alpha Zero was working, because the press releases around that made it sound like the triumph of reinforcement learning, that it was given just the rules of the game then played against itself and got better at doing that, presumably by seeing what worked and what didn't, mm-hmm. and that you could give it the rules of any game and it would be able to do that as well. Did I understand that correctly? Because it sounds like that's like the triumph of reinforcement learning is about as simple as it could be to make reinforcement learning work for something. Have I misinterpreted that? Well, it was a trend, especially when it comes to people interested in solving board games, because their initiative works very well after the go. I think the guys from DeepMind tried for chess and it was working very well as well. But it's not a triumph in a sense that you would really like solve or like make huge advancement in all the problems that could be solved with reinforcement learning. Like just maybe you've seen how big struggle it was for DeepMind when they tried to use their Alpha Zero for playing uh, StarCraft. Uh, how did they call it? I forgot the name, but maybe you did see it. They did have some paper on it like uh, two years back when they announced that they are giving up, that it's too hard problem. They actually didn't want to say it officially, but it was like this. Uh, they tried for like many years with huge resources, huge number of people. And if you would see the final things that they did get, it was actually quite impressive. If you would uh, see it from the point of view of machine learning, like suddenly they did uh, much better than anybody else. But of course, they also spent much more resources than anybody else because they did have access to it. But uh, ultimately, they actually failed. There was a lot of people who did manage to beat this deep mind StarCraft machine just like in some very, very comical ways, but it was just behaving as just typical bot, like uh, it could out micro people. I don't know if you actually know StarCraft, but I like different parts of the game. Without going to the details, there were like simple ways where you would see that the machine just doesn't understand the game, that it can produce huge number of actions very precisely, very quickly, and be faster than the human, but it failed in some very like typical tactical moves. Then it was just over defending itself. It's too many units somewhere and failing to see actually what is happening big picture. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. I get a sense of talking to you just how complex this is and how much I want to try and simplify it for the audience. But the implications of the work that you're engaged on here sound very much as though you're working on the frontiers of the fundamental algorithms that we use for machine learning. I wonder if here towards the end of the interview, you can speculate about how you would like to see this developing in the next five to 10 years. Well, what I think would be great in the next five to 10 years would be if we as the research community can find some new ways how to approach artificial intelligence, especially the learning algorithms that require less supervision. So again, like advancements in either evolutionary algorithms or reinforcement learning, I think that would be all very exciting because supervised learning, in a sense, kind of solved the 
it's very useful and companies it's generating profit because we already know how to use it and in many cases you actually do have the supervision and it's just basically supervised machine learning you can see it in some ways as some new type of programming where you actually know what you want to do but you don't know how to specify it in a code and you let this code to be learned in the form of neural network through the learning algorithms so I think that's amazing on its own but again it's not going to take us to AI and what I would like to see in the next five to ten years is something new basically to move forward we really need to keep doing new things and I feel that the field and the research community has been somewhat stagnating. I think we need even like novelty search within the research community because if you would uh, go to, I don't know, NIPS or ICML, you basically just see like combinations of things that you've already seen before and I think that the current system kind of like promotes more like very, very incremental improvements when people are hunting 0.01% improvement on some unknown data set to have the state-of-the-art results, which is kind of like a necessary to get papers accepted in many cases. I think it's boring, and especially the NLP community, where I did also like a contributor with, with some topics, I feel that people are just kind of like walking in a circle. They are just overtuning their models on a data set, and then it's just like uh, the accuracy, which is... 100%, they just move to some other data set and then again overtune it. And it's just boring to keep uh, thinking uh, for years again and again. So I think that uh, it would be great to pick some tasks which, uh, if solved, would actually mean something. So I'll give you an example. Like if you look at some very popular tasks in natural language processing, like parsing, does it actually make sense to work on this task? Uh, in the long term, if you solve parsing with 100% accuracy, what will you have just the machine that solves parsing? So I always felt that uh, people should be more ambitious in what they are trying to solve because otherwise we actually can get a solution to some problem and then realize that the problem itself was actually kind of like useless. Mm. But, so I think that developing tasks that would be closer to machine intelligence that uh, actually would be very useful for us. It's like one of the big topics for the future as well. Like. Uh, Looking back at the last uh, 15 years, the most popular benchmarks are like ImageNet. Uh, that's nice, but it's not about intelligence, it's just a classifier. And then you have like some speech recognition data sets, machine translation data sets. That's all nice because it's useful. So I think that this is actually very nice things. But if you have a 100% accurate speech recognizer, is it actually necessary to have an intelligent machine or is it just enough to have huge amounts of data that is transcribed with very high quality? And maybe you can actually reach accuracy of speech recognizer that will be more accurate than humans without having any intelligence at all. So I think that uh, there's kind of like this divergence. Some people keep talking about AI, but they are actually working on machine learning and they are optimizing statistical classifiers that may be very useful in the companies. But AI, I think the original AI was more about like having machines that are able to learn similar rate as humans. So from similar amount of supervision, at similar speed, with similar generalization capabilities. And for that, I think that we don't really have good data. So some people try to propose something, including me in the last five, 10 years, but there's nothing standard. And I think that this AGI community is very, very underdeveloped at the moment. I think, by the way, they changed the name from NIPS to NeurIPS. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah they did. Well. You're reminding me of just the early days, 1956, when they coined the term artificial intelligence. They were very clear then that it was going to be about reproducing human modes of thinking and cognition. And now we're in this era where people want to attach the name artificial intelligence to as many things as possible, 
even though it's like cluster analysis and statistical methods and regression and so forth. What do you think drives this kind of behavior of people focusing in areas where it's not what artificial intelligence means to you? Is it the need to find grants? Is that where the money is? Is it the publish or perish cycle? What's causing that? Yeah, I think that in these things, uh, as you said, like I think that the funding is certainly like a big topic because... I know like uh, that a lot of people who are basically making fun of AI like some 10, 15 years ago are now like calling themselves AI researchers like uh, publicly so they can get the funding, but they still basically just see it as uh, some sort of joke. Like uh, if you would make some poll among the researchers who are going to these big machine learning conferences and just ask them whether they think that AI is even doable, you would just find that maybe half or one third of the people who are working on AI and so on don't actually even believe that it can be done within our lifetime. So, so there is a lot of this double thing or whatever I would call it, like people will publicly just say, oh, AI, AI is great and we need to develop this safety measure so that um, evil AGI will not destroy us. And the same people will uh, tell you in private that they don't think that this AI will ever uh, be a thing because it's just like such a blue sky thing at the moment. And they don't have any problem to ask for money, but they just make these stories so that they can get the attention. I actually did find it uh, kind of sad and that's includes uh, even like some high-level researchers across like big, big research teams that do things this way. So not going to tell names, but basically I did speak with a lot of people who would tell you the private uh, complete opposite of what they are saying in the public talks. So there's much more skepticism of the AI among some of the most well-known AI researchers, which is kind of like strange thing to me. But again, I'd say that it's the funding that you mentioned. This publisher parish uh, might be... Uh, Part of it as well, there certainly is also like this uh, phenomenon uh, in the startups that when they just attach uh, the AI uh, label to themselves, uh, it was reported somewhere that they just get like uh, maybe 30 or 50% more investments uh, because they just look much more cool. Even if they don't have any data, they don't use any machine learning, they just have some website uh, and they will just call themselves AI and suddenly it looks much more cool. So I think that uh, there's like a this AI bubble uh, in the last maybe five, 10 years, maybe 10 years, uh, it's going on. And that's what we see that there are so many people talking, not just about AI, but even this AGI shortcut. And I find it kind of like annoying that people who just don't even know how to train logistic regression will tell you like, for example, from startups that they are working on AGI and there's no substance basically. So like the fun fact is that uh, if you look at this moment, who is actually making some research on AGI in the world with the ambition of building that AI, like with the capabilities from the 50s of the last century, there will be just a handful of people like our groups. So there's much, much less people that are really working on AGI than the ones who just claim to be doing so. So there's quite a few institutes that are studying the risks of AGI and things like that. But I sometimes feel that there's more people studying the risks from the philosophical point of view <laughs> than people who are actually trying to do anything new on this front. You make a very good point there. So, Tomasz, if people want to follow your work, how should they look for you? Well, I'm trying to publish the papers uh, with the students whenever we can. And the last ones we published at the Startup Life Community Conference. But the easiest probably is to follow the Google Scholar page. Uh, you can just see the new papers. Uh, also, like if anybody is interested in concrete things that I'm working on, then it's quite easy to reach to me, whatever email and sound works. That's basically it. Uh. Terrific. 
Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and good luck with the conclusion of your research there and whatever is coming up for you next. That's the end of the interview. I love talking with people who are pushing the bits around to make AI work and are doing the research into improving that because they really ensure that we anchor how we understand AI in the here and now. So that when we go off into the philosophical inquiries and the science fiction, we can really get a sense of how applicable those things are today versus further off. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Pony.ai has plans to mass-produce its Level 4 self-driving system by 2023. The intent was shared by the company on its public WeChat account in Shanghai during the recent World Artificial Intelligence Conference. The Level 4 system will be powered by a new sensing platform equipped with Iris LiDAR sensors developed by US-based Luminar Technologies, which are fairly tall cylinders mounted on the roof. At present, Pony.ai is testing its fleet of over 200 robo-taxis in the Chinese cities of Guangzhou, Shanghai, and Beijing, as well as Irvine and Fremont in California. No information on what mass-produced translates to in actual numbers or whether the cars they're building will be deployed in the US, China, or both. I would bet that they'll see more service in modern cities in China and maybe also US cities with incredibly easy roads like Phoenix. I read a few years ago that China is building new cities, which they do at an incredible rate, to be friendly toward autonomous vehicles. And I think we are starting to see how that strategy could pay off, since it appears possible now to deploy level 4 AVs in a location that's got roads that are wide enough and simple enough. Speaking of AVs, next week's guest will be Todd Littman, the founder of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute, an independent research organization dedicated to developing innovative and practical solutions to transportation problems. Todd has a report assessing the current and future state of autonomous vehicle development and how policy should adapt to accommodate AVs. And that's going to really give you a very grounded perspective on where we are with self-driving vehicles right now. And that can be of immediate use for everything from deciding what car to buy to what stock to buy. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.